Father, we have already been praying in the words of the songs that we have sung. We have acknowledged our need for you and also our lack of awareness of our need for you. Some of us have been able to sing those words as an expression of where we are today. And others of us have barely been able to connect with those emotions. Thank you that you are patient and you are gracious to us. Thank you that your loving kindness pursues us, that you are our shepherd and we are your sheep. That your rod and your staff are comfort to us both in terms of the protection that it provides but also in the way in which you keep drawing us back to yourself. And even as we've just expressed, Father, that your word is the true food, we are reminded of your own words to us that my flesh is meat indeed and my blood is drink indeed. And with the disciples of all we say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so as we come to you, Jesus, the living word of God, we pray that you will indeed feed us that which we are desperate for. And your very word spoken to us is our daily bread. Forgive us for the times we have neglected that bread and have tried to satisfy our souls with so many other things. Thank you for this hour or this time each week that you allow for us to come and feed on you. In Jesus' name, Amen. <clears throat> Fairly early on in this present Middle East conflict, I was uh, uh, watching and in- listening to an interview on CNN that Wolf Blitzer at the Situation Room. He was uh, interviewing the Syrian ambassador who was in New York at that time. And one of the things he asked him was, he said, does Syria support UN Resolution Number 1559? And for those of you who do not know what that is all about, it is the resolution that calls for Hezbollah to completely disarm themselves. The Syrian ambassador's response was extremely significant to me. Here's what he said. He said, the Syrian government is completely in favor of all of the UN resolutions, but why don't we start not with 1559, but resolution 442 that was passed in 1967. And that resolution called for the withdrawal of all Israeli armed forces from the territories of recent conflict, something that they have not yet obeyed for 39 years. And here was the question that he asked Blitzer afterwards. He said, why is it that America always gets excited and throws its full weight behind all those UN resolutions that are in favor of Israel, but does absolutely nothing about the other ones? It's a good question. And it's a question that actually betrays a very popular attitude towards Israel today. Probably found most among the fundamentalist right wing south of the border, probably. And that is this almost mindless siding with Israel on every political issue, no matter what they do and what the issues are. And it is often allied with a theology that sees Israel as having a divine right to that land. And therefore they should get it no matter what the circumstances are. That's one Fairly prevalent view, as I said, mostly among the religious right. And probably articulated more clearly south of the border than here. But probably held by quite a few Christians. At the other end of the spectrum, not held by that many Christians, but nonetheless uh, a significant part of it, is the opposite view that Israel has been judged and rejected by God, and the church has basically replaced Israel. 
in God's purposes. That's the mild expression of that particular uh, attitude. The most ugliest of it, at least according to certain scholars, has been a long history of anti-Semitism in Europe that basically provided the conditions for Nazism. In fact, my son-in-law Duncan, who studies uh, New Testament theology at the University of Toronto, says that some professors draw a straight line from Pauline and Reformed theology all the way to the Holocaust. So here we have two very extreme and opposed views of how Christians are to view Israel. On the one side, a completely mindless, unthinking, siding with them on everything. And on the other hand, this replacement theology that God has finished with his purposes for them as a nation. Who's right? Are both wrong? And to sharpen the question even further, how would you answer if on the one side you had the Syrian ambassador or a, or a Palestinian ask you that question, and on the other hand you had a Jewish friend who accuses Paul and the New Testament of being anti-Semitic? Would you know how to answer the question? That's exactly what Romans chapter 11 is going to address. That's how relevant something that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago is for you and me today. I want you to pay attention and listen carefully. As we learned last week, let the word of God make you wise. Chapter 11 is basically structured around two questions and the answers to them. In verse 1, Paul says, I asked then did God reject his people? If you remember last week at the end of chapter 10, that deals with Israel's responsibility for her rejection. We, the picture that Paul portrayed for us at the end was God with his outstretched arms waiting for a disobedient nation to respond. And so that naturally sets up the question, well, has God rejected his people? Paul's answer to that is no way. And then in verse 11, he asks a second question. Again, I ask, did they, Israel, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And the answer again is by no means. The rest of the chapter is, a, is an explanation of Paul's answers to these two questions. And in the process, he will also address this issue of what is a biblical stance towards the nation of Israel and the Gentile nations today. <clears throat> First of, all, first of all, let's take a look at his answer to the first question. Did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Well, Paul says, no, God has not rejected his people. Exhibit number one is me. <laughs> he says, I'm a Jew. And God not only did not reject me, he has actually chosen me to play a very critical ongoing role in his global purposes. And he's been using me these 25 years to preach the gospel all over the Roman Empire. So obviously, God has not rejected his people if he can work with me that way. That's his sort of exhibit number one. <laughs> And then secondly, he appeals to a well-known story from Israel's own history. It was way back in the time of kings, when King Ahab, a wicked uh, king, ruled over Judah. And uh, he had entered into an unholy marriage with Jezebel, who was a pagan woman, who brought in the worship of Baal into, into the life of Israel. And she had a guild of the prophets of Baal. And Elijah had just been involved in a major confrontation with the prophets of Baal, and the living God had answered by fire, and the prophets of Baal had all been destroyed. And a furious Jezebel said to Elijah, I'm going to make you pay for your life with this. And so Elijah ran from her, afraid for his life, 
depressed, physically tired. And in that condition, he complains to God. He says, God, all of Israel has gone away from you. I'm the only one who's left. <laughs> and God says, no, I know it looks like that, but you're not the only one. There's another 7,000 people in this. Not a lot. Not a lot. There's not a lot. <laughs> There's another 7,000 people, though, who have not bowed their knee to Baal and who still worship me. And so he says, you're not alone. That, in the Old Testament, was the uh, seed of a doctrine known as the doctrine of the remnant, which we will see carried throughout this particular chapter. And so Paul says, just like that, today, there is a remnant of people. Not a lot, not a large number, but not zero either. In addition to Paul, there's a number of people that have, Jewish people that have responded to Christ. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, you'll find all of those early respondents to the gospel were all Israelites. And he said, they are a remnant that have been chosen by grace. And so if you want to portray this in, in a little diagram, because pictures will stick in your mind better than words. He says, here's unbelieving Israel as a whole. And the question is, has God rejected them nationally? Paul says, no, first of all, there's me. And then there's this small believing remnant that is still there that has been chosen by grace. And this remnant is a proof, says Paul, that God has not finished with his purposes for his people. And what about the rest of unbelieving Israel? In verse 7 he says, What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, which was a righteousness, a right standing by God, before God, it did not obtain. But the elect, the remnant within Israel did. The others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. And so we can complete the picture by adding these words. There's Paul and the believing remnant, and there's unbelieving Israel hardened by God until his purposes are accomplished. So that's his answer to his first question. This automatically sets up the next question. What about unbelieving, hardened Israel? Is that the permanent condition? And so Paul begins by saying, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. He's using the doctrine of the remnant in this way. You see, that doctrine served two purposes. On the one hand, it was negative in its implication, meaning it was a very, very small number of people. On the other hand, the remnant also was served positively as a doctrine of hope. One of the other images in the Old Testament that you will find in the prophet Isaiah is a remnant like a stump of a tree. You know what happens when you cut down a tree? The tree is all gone, there's a little stump, but the stump starts shedding out shoots all over the place. And before long it's become a tree of its own. You know. That happens in our garden, it's a nuisance then. But Paul uses that analogy to say, on the one hand, the remnant is a picture of judgment. On the other hand, it's a picture of not irrevocable judgment, but hope. And so Paul is using the remnant in these two ways. There's a small remnant, but there's also hope that's coming. And so he amplifies. That's the kind of argument he's going to develop here. He says, rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. And this theme of envy is a key, a key concept here. Keep listening. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? This is the heart of Paul's arguments in Romans 11 that he repeats several times. Basically what he's saying is this. Israel's sin in rejecting their Messiah was actually the first step in a three-stage divine plan that will eventually come back to bless the nation of Israel, but in between, it is a time of blessing for the Gentiles. Again, let me put it to you in the form of a diagram because that will stick in your mind clearly. 
So he describes Israel's present condition with these words. Transgression, because they have rebelled against a a person, God. Loss, they have lost all of the wonderful privileges that were theirs. And Paul had listed them in Romans chapter 9, if you remember. And they have been rejected by God. National Israel has been hardened by God. Paul says that, of course, has opened the door for the Gentiles. And what their rejection is the exact opposite. Their transgression, on the other hand, for Gentiles has been salvation. Their loss has been for the Gentiles the riches of covenant privileges. And their rejection by God has meant for the Gentiles reconciliation with God. They got a righteousness, we learned last week, that they weren't even seeking. But Paul says, and that's the present stage with a small little remnant. But he says there's a stage three coming. He says in God's plan, this Blessing that is overflowing to the Gentiles is intended by God to stimulate envy and jealousy in Israel. Now, we use envy and jealousy in negative terms. And that's what happened initially. Initially, out of their envy and jealousy, just like the chief priests, out of their envy of the the number of people that were following Jesus, had him crucified. But envy and jealousy also can work in positive terms. And that's how Paul is using it here. The, The envy would work in this way. We, the privileges that were ours, the Gentiles are getting in on. And I don't want to miss that. It's the kind of envy and jealousy Paul says. It's not happening right now. Right now the envy and jealousy is all in a bad form and they have rejected the Messiah. But one day that envy and jealousy will stimulate them. And he says it will lead one day to Israel's fullness and acceptance by God. And the word that is translated fullness here can be used both qualitatively Like when we say so-and-so has lived a very full life. That's not a quantitative measure, but qualitative. But it also means, and that's what his meaning is here, is quantitative in terms of numbers. So in other words, he says, there's coming a day when God's purposes among the Gentiles, all of the non-Jews, has been completed. That will lead to a time when a large, much larger number of Israel will respond to the gospel. And so we can modify our picture. And Paul is saying this. He says, unbelieving Israel's hardening is going to be removed when the times of the Gentiles are finished. And at that time, that small remnant will grow and a much larger number of people will begin to respond. So that initial picture will begin to look like this, says Paul. And the the remnant, this is the remnant being used in a positive sense. The tree is now growing. The shoots are coming out all over the place. Now, Paul doesn't tell us when this will happen. And that's what most of us are busy trying to figure out when. The Bible never tells us when. But while he doesn't tell us when in terms of quantitative time, he does tell us when in terms of God's kairos moment. Because in that text he has said, if Israel's transgression has meant riches for the Gentiles, what will Israel's fullness be but life from the dead? (laughs) And life from the dead in in, uh, the way the new first century Israelites understood it, and the way the scriptures understand it is nothing but that final fulfillment of God's purposes, his eventual vindication of his chosen people and the beginning of God's reign on earth. In other words, the time for us when Christ will come back again. So basically what Paul is saying is this. The second answer to the question that God has not rejected his people. Is that just as Israel's disobedience triggered the second stage in God's global agenda, which is the broadcasting of the gospel to the nations of the world. In the same way, 
the fullness of the Gentiles will one day trigger a much larger response from Israel to the gospel which will usher in the end of the ages and the return of Christ. So here are Paul's three basic answers to the question, God has not rejected his people. Exhibit number one, Paul himself. Exhibit number two, that present remnant, the remnant of Jewish believers that now already exist. And exhibit number three, the remnant is a hope, like functioning at the stump of a tree of a future multitude of Jewish believers that will trigger in the end of the age. So this is Paul's basic answer to the question, God has not rejected his people. Now, who is he writing all of this to? Remember, he's writing all of this to to Rome, to a Gentile audience. He says that in verse 13. I am talking to you Gentiles. Now, here's the question. You and I are all Gentiles. Unless there happens to be in our midst today a believer from a Jewish background. Why is Paul making this extended uh, analysis and understanding of God's purposes with Israel to a Gentile audience in Rome? Well, we need to remember in the very first message, if you can think back to March 5th, Uh, we learned one of the reasons why Paul was writing to the church in Rome or about the church in Rome. Uh, In uh, in, in 48 AD, Claudius Caesar at that time had issued an edict that all Jews had to be expelled from Rome. Which meant Jews from a Christian background, part of the remnant, also had to leave. Therefore, the church in Rome was reduced to only Gentiles. And this condition lasted approximately five years until the death of Claudius when the edict was reversed and Jews could go back to Rome, which would mean some Jewish Christians would head back. Imagine what would happen to a church that was completely deprived of all but one particular group, which is the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles were completely in charge of the Roman church. And now all of a sudden Jewish Christians were coming back in. Paul is writing to warn the Gentiles about boasting. (laughs) Their legitimate rejoicing in the fact that the covenant privileges of God have come to them could very easily slip over into arrogance and pride that they have been included while those guys have been excluded. Paul is writing to warn them against that danger. Now, of course, there is the possibility that some of them may have said, but just a minute, Paul, you call yourself apostle to the Gentiles. That's how Paul calls himself in the book of Acts. If you are a Jew and you're calling yourself apostle to the Gentiles, doesn't that mean that God has turned his back upon his people? Why are you calling yourself apostle to the Gentiles? So Paul heads off that argument as well when he says in verse 15, Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry. Why? In the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy. Notice that theme of envy and jealousy. No, no, Paul has this picture in mind. (laughs) And Paul is saying, yes, you know why I'm making much of my ministry to the Gentiles? Because as I stimulate Gentiles to respond to Christ and as their fullness increases, I never know when that next stage is going to be triggered that the Bible speaks about when Israel's fullness will come in and usher in the end of the age. So even my making much of my ministry to the Gentiles is because I am passionately concerned about my own people and God's promises. Now, when you add this view of the Apostle Paul to his earlier statements in Romans chapter 9 that my, I have unceasing anguish and great sorrow in my heart for my people Israel. And then in chapter 10 when he says, my heart's desire in prayer for them is that they be saved. How can Paul be called anti-Semitic? So that's the first clear answer to that question. <clears throat> so important, by the way, is this issue of Gentile uh, um, boasting that Paul now Uh, introduces a second image, the image of the olive tree. He says that some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild shoot, have been grafted in among the others. 
and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Paul is continuing to underline to the Gentile church in Rome, you don't have any basis for boasting just because you've been included, they've been excluded. And then he, he's making two basic points with the image of the olive tree. The first one is no boasting. Why? He says, you know, you, you're branches. <laughs> and the only way a branch is alive is because it is connected to the root through the trunk. And guess what the root is? The root is Jewish. <laughs> These are the patriarchal promises. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is accomplishing all of his purposes in Jesus Christ. Now, how can you boast when your root that is sustaining you is Jewish in its heritage? That's his first argument. Besides, he says, belonging to or not belonging to, either being grafted or being broken, they're all a matter of faith, not of merit. <laughs> you were grafted in because of faith, they were broken in because of unbelief, which is what he's finished in chapter 10. Therefore, how can you boast? On both of these conditions, Paul says, all boasting is removed. In fact, he says, if I were you and you're boasting, I'd be scared. You need a little bit of healthy dose of fear. <laughs> and why fear, he says, you know which branches were broken off? They were natural branches. <laughs> They were branches that naturally belonged to the root system. They were part of the ethnic people of Israel. And they were broken off because of unbelief. What makes you think who were grafted in as a wild olive tree branches that you cannot be broken off? Wild olive trees in Israel were notorious for their unfruitfulness. (laughs) And so that's another dig at Gentile pride. If there's any pride on their part. Also he says you, you, you by were broken off because of unbelief and they stand by faith. So, do not be arrogant but be afraid for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Paul uses such strong language and it underlines for us the fact that the the possibility of boasting was real and the danger of boasting was very real. Because you see, if they boasted, then it meant that they did not understand it was by grace. If they don't understand it by grace and they're trusting in their own works, guess what? They're not part of the tree. The branches get broken off just like Israel was broken off. So that's sort of his first main point with this analogy of uh, the uh, olive tree. Do you see how he's come full circle? Way back in chapter 3, he was admonishing the Jews for boasting about their heritage. Remember Stephen's, Pastor Stephen's sermon, No Immunity? <laughs> they were boasting because they had all these patriarchal connections and promises. They were boasting and Paul clearly explained to them, you have no basis for boasting. Now he's come full circles and he's saying to the Gentiles, you've got no basis for boasting either. And by the way, he's saying all of that to you and me, Gentiles, today. Now his second point is the theme of hope with the olive tree. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Remember the doctrine of the remnant was also a metaphor of hope. So in the same way Paul is saying, yeah, you were broken off because of unbelief and you are boasting over them. But listen, 
if they do not remain in their unbelief when that time of Israel's hardening will be removed, God is able to graft them back in. And, and he says the point of the matter is when you who were unnatural, wild branches could be connected back. Contrary to nature, I'm not a horticulturist, but I understand that the normal process was the other way around. That you would take branches from a healthy, fruitful olive tree and graft it onto a wild one so that the energy in the wild one can be harnessed. And Paul is reversing his metaphor here, not because he's stupid when it comes to horticulture, but he's driving home the point to Israel, to, to the Gentiles, what a miracle it was that God brought them into the kingdom after all. <laughs> it was totally contrary to what would have happened by nature. He says, if he can do that with you, how easy it is for him to graft his own people back again. The point is not that some ethnic groups are easier to come to Christ than others. You don't press biblical analogies to every single point. Rather, Paul is using this olive tree analogy in a very broad brush treatment to drive home this issue of no boasting. (laughs) And uh, Douglas Moo in his commentary to the Romans captures it very well, so I've kind of reproduced his statement here. He said, coming to the message of the olive tree, basic to the whole metaphor is the unity of God's people. A unity that crosses both historical and ethnic boundaries. There is only one olive tree whose roots are firmly planted in Old Testament soil and whose branches include both the Jews and Gentiles. This olive tree represents the true people of God. The turn of the ages at the coming of Christ brought an important development in the people of God. The ethnic makeup of that people changed radically as God extended His grace in vastly increased measure to the Gentiles. You know, I couldn't help... Thinking of this, when Sham and I first came to Rexdale 35 years ago, Sham and Julie Benner were the only two non-Caucasian people in the whole church. Well, he's completely changed that makeup today. But Paul's metaphor warns us not to view this transition as a transition from one people of God to another. Gentiles who come to Christ become part of that community of salvation founded on God's promises to the patriarchs. And Messianic Jews following in the footsteps of their believing ancestors belong to the same community. There's no Jewish olive tree. There's no Gentile olive tree. There is one olive tree rooted in the patriarchs and all the branches belong to that one tree. Given that, we can now make four very clear statements about those two questions with which I started. Number one, we can say categorically that the Apostle Paul in the New Testament correctly understood is most definitely not anti-Semitic. He's passionately, passionately Uh, the opposite of that. Secondly, the church has not replaced Israel and God's plan. There is no room for Gentile arrogance and boasting. God is not finished with the people of Israel. Thirdly, on the other hand, it is categorically wrong to automatically side with the nation of Israel in any conflict with Gentile nations today because national Israel is right now in a state of divine hardening. And just this morning on the news again, they bombed another town eight miles south of Tyre. Mostly women and children killed in that one. Let me repeat that again. On the other hand, it is categorically wrong to automatically side with the nation of Israel in any conflict with Gentile nations because national Israel is in a state of divine hardening. They may or may not be right in a particular situation. And fourthly, because Jewish and Gentile branches are both grafted by faith onto the same olive tree, the future large-scale turning of Israel to Christ will be an addition to the Gentile church and not a replacement to it, as certain types of theology would teach. So those are four things I think that I trust from Romans chapter 11 will give us some sanity and some perspective. There are more questions for you to think through in the study guide for today. (coughs) 
Paul finishes uh, his argument. I'm going to jump over a few verses this morning. You can look at them in your own study. But Paul finishes by a summary of his whole argument in Romans 11 again. He says, just as you who were at one time disobedient, Gentiles, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, which is Israel's, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So there is no ground for Jewish boasting. There is no ground for Gentile boasting. All of us have been disobedient so that all of us might receive mercy from God and be grafted on the That That's the heart of his argument. And what naturally follows from this is so there's any boasting to be done at all. Guess who we need to be boasting about. And that's where the whole argument has been moving from chapter 9 to chapter 10. God's word has not failed. God has not forgotten his promises to his people. There's both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. All these things have been spelled out for us. And now Paul finishes with these words. If there's any boasting to be done, let's boast in God. And I don't want to rush through this because this was the purpose of the other three chapters. In a sense, Romans 11, 33 to 36 are not just a summary of Romans chapter 11. <laughs> They're not just a summary of Romans chapters 9 to 11. They are a summary of Romans chapters 1 to 11. Where Paul has talked about this gospel. That is the power of God unto salvation. Because in the gospel, a righteousness of God is being revealed. And he has revealed that righteousness of God in all of its splendor in 11 chapters. And what should be our response? He says, oh, the depths. There's a huge amount of theology packed in O. It's better translated all. You know what it made me think of? It made me think of that first time when I got to the edge of the Grand Canyon. Not from far away, but close enough that I could look down into the depths. And your hand kind of flies to your mouth. Your heart begins to beat a little bit faster. And you say, wow, look at the depths. And look at the vastness. And of course, if there was anybody standing next to you, any sane man or woman would say what? Did you see that? It calls for a response like that. And what Paul is saying is, just like the Colorado River has been, and I think one of the reasons God caused that Colorado River to cut that Grand Canyon was to give us a little bit of glimpse into Romans 11.33. That we might just say, oh, the depths. Has that even been close to your reaction over these last five, six months? In any of these 17 sermons, have you even once felt like that? I hope a lot more than once. Oh, the depths. And then he talks about several things about God. Oh, the depths of the riches. And in the context of Romans 9 to 11, the riches talks about the riches of his mercy, which has been the immediate context as well. Mercy to the Gentiles, mercy to the Jews. God's undeserved kindness and his mercy. Oh, the depths of the riches of God. And then his knowledge, uh, wisdom. This amazing plan that we just sketched out. Where Jewish rejection becomes an open door to Gentile acceptance, which becomes a stimulation to envy and becomes an open door for Jewish response, which ushers in the end of the age. Paul says, what an awesome mystery this is. Only God can work in these amazing ways. And then knowledge. Knowledge in this context is not just head knowledge, but the knowledge that... that mm, makes God choose the electing grace of God, which has been the theme of Romans 9 and 10 and 11. God's election, God's hardening, all of that. Oh, the depths, the riches, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And so he says how unsearchable or how unfathomable, how deep, there's no bottom to this. 
of his judgments. And the judgments here are not talking about some future judgment. They're talking about God's executive decisions in running this world and arranging it with all of its mysteries. There's a lot about this world that I don't understand. Paul says that's exactly how it should be. Now, naturally, with such a sweeping focus upon God, how do you and I feel when we're on the edge of the Grand Canyon? We feel very small. As somebody once said, no one stands on the edge of the Grand Canyon and sings how great I am. You know. No one peers into the depths of the majesty of God and says how great I am. Instead, they say how small I am, which is what verse 34 and 35 is all about. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? The answer in each of these three questions is no one. No one knows the mind of God. No one certainly advises God. And no one has given anything to God that demands that God give him back anything. And have you, it struck me also that so often this is the typical attitude of those who do not trust Christ. The world and sometimes even Christians. Because we presume the exact opposite. We presume to know the mind of God. We certainly give him all kinds of advice on what he should have done and how he should have responded in certain situations and how dare he do these other things. And after all the good that I have done for him, will he not give me back? I mean, think about it, folks. How many times have you heard statements like that? And I'm not min- Don't get me wrong. I'm not minimizing the reality of suffering and anguish and sorrow. Stephen so beautifully has walked us through some of those existential struggles when we are di- dialoguing with God. We've talked about the needing to wrestle with God in the past. But when it comes right down to it, this is worship. The exact opposite of that is idolatry. And why? He said, why, why, why does he say no one is given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. From him are all things. He's the source of everything. Through him are all things. He sustains everything. To him are all things. He's the goal of everything. Now if God is the source of everything, the sustainer of everything and the goal of everything... What's the implication? (laughs) There's only one thing we can say. To God be the glory forever. You sit back and look at these 11 chapters of Romans. Paul says to him, be glory forever. Now there's one more word. That's that one, Amen. I want to take a few moments and finish this service and, and uh, the sermon and bridge to where we are headed now with that word Amen. It's, it's the only Hebrew word that's carried over unchanged into every language in the world where people have come to know Christ. I mean, I've heard prayers in many, many languages and they always end with Amen. They may pronounce it strangely, but they always end with Amen. Obviously, God had a very definite purpose for this. And if you look at Paul's writings in, 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 in the New Testament, this Amen is also intended to be uttered audibly and publicly in worship. You know why? Because it is your, a signature of your emotional response to the truth that is being encountered. Actually, I can give you a better picture than define it. Have you ever seen Tiger Woods pump his fist at the end of a major? Or if you see a hockey player getting on his knees after he scored a goal and pumping his fist three or four or five times. That's, that's the heart attitude inside that expresses itself outside as an amen. That tells you how they feel about what they've just done. And you know why it's important that, it, that we might see some public manifestations of that kind of uh, response? Because if not, if not, you will leave worship services 
And no one will know how you've been affected. I mean, you go away knowing how I've been affected. You'll either go away saying, boy, he was sure excited about what he was preaching today. Or some days you might say, boy, that didn't mean much to him. It was pretty dull today. But either way, you know what I'm thinking about. And you have no doubt what frame of mind Stephen is in today. I need to know what frame of mind you're in. You need to know each other what frame of mind you're in. So once in a while, don't be afraid to let go. We are, we are a thousand miles away from becoming out of control in that area. And the goal of these 11 chapters to think through and meditate upon the truth of the revelation of God's gospel and the righteousness of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God, the holiness of God, the mercy of God, the long-suffering of God, His divine sovereignty and kindness is intended every now and then at least to bring forth some kind of response from us. So I want you to begin. Begin a new journey today, will you, of saying, I'm going to allow, listen, Don't tell me you can't do it because you do it in every other area of your life. You do it at weddings. You do it at the birth of your children and your grandchildren. You do it when the stock market goes up. You do it when your favorite team wins. You give one another high fives. You pick up the telephone. Every one of us does it in every other area of our life. What's the matter when it comes to our relationship with God? I don't know the answers, but I have to ask you the questions. Paul says this calls forth an amen from God. You know, as I thought about our benediction, this is what came to my mind. You know, we opened this service with an exhortation about satisfaction or dissatisfaction. We're all, we're all content where maybe we shouldn't be and not content where we should be. <laughs> our tendency is to look at people who have more than us in the material realm of life, in the visible realm of life, and be discontent. And spiritually we look at people who are less than us and we get content. My blessing for you is that God will reverse that whole thing in your life. May you become a people who will focus upon those who have less than you in the visible realm of life and be content there. And may He increase and sharpen your focus on those who are much richer than you spiritually and may you hunger after that righteousness in your own life. Go in Jesus' name.